Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Jerk chicken, curried goat, ackee and salt fish. These are just some of the famous dishes which make up the patchwork of Jamaican cuisine. With influences from across the world, from West Africa, Spain, China and East India, each dish can tell a different story of the arrival of settlers, colonialists and enslaved people who lived on the Caribbean island throughout history. Today on the podcast, we're joined by two cooks and food writers, Melissa Thompson and Rias Phillips, to explore the historical roots of Jamaican cuisine and its place in the world today. Melissa Thompson is a columnist for BBC Good Food and her first book, Motherland, a Jamaican cookbook, is out now. Her conversation partner is Riaz Phillips, author of West Winds, Recipes, History and Tales from Jamaica. Let's join them both now to hear more. Yes, I mean, just to get started, we just drive straight into the book and talk about your personal relationship to Jamaica over the years and what led you up to the moment of wanting to write a book about the island. In terms of your personal relation to Jamaica, your family are Jamaican? Yeah, so my dad's Jamaican. My mum is Maltese and my dad's family came over in the 50s and they settled in Darlington in the northeast and my dad joined the navy at 17 so I kind of moved around was stationed abroad I was on ships and things and then ended up settling in Weymouth um, in Portland actually Portland and Dorset where there was a naval base and he never because of which I think is quite a common story actually and I'd, I'd be interested to know if you've got any kind of similarities so his parents left him in Jamaica and then sent for him when he was nine years old and at first he was with his, his grandmother but he loved it like she was loving and, and it was great and then when she passed away he was put into the care of his uh, paternal grandfather and he didn't have a very great time his paternal grandfather was quite was quite violent and my dad you know he, he never went to school and only recently I heard him describe himself as a farmer because he'd help kind of you know like digging up stuff like planting things and he just remembers having to walk miles and miles to go like to the kind of different fields having to go and dig up stuff and being sent to go and do this or catching Jenga down at the, the stream down the bottom of the land so he came over to England when he was nine and didn't have a great time here either and you know, had siblings who were now strangers who were strangers to him he'd never met them and then he joined the navy at 17 and, and he because of his experience 
experience in Jamaica, it was really weird, like, because we, we went to Malta a lot where my mum comes from, but we there was never really much discussion about going to Jamaica. And I think, well, now we've ha had lots of discussions about it and it's because he didn't have a fond memory of it because it was just kind of, you know, his, his memory of it was quite violent. And so then we ended up going, I think I was about 30 when we went, um, and it ended up being a, a bit of an accident because we were meant to be going to Japan for my brother's wedding, and your sister-in-law's Japanese, and then there was the tsunami, so the flights got cancelled, but we couldn't get a refund and we could only kind of transfer them somewhere else. And so we were like, well, let's go to Jamaica. And so that was the first time we went, and it was, um, it was quite a fraught trip. It was quite emotional. And I mean, obviously, as well, the, the cost of going to Jamaica as well. Like, we would go to Malta all the time because it was cheap. We had, like, free accommodation there. And so there was kind of quite a few obstacles going to Jamaica. And it was just, it was just mad. I'd been to Antigua before then, and I'd loved it. It was the first kind of, like, first time that I'd been to, you know, like a sort of a black majority country, and it just felt nice and it just felt good. And um, Jamaica was a bit more fraught because of all the emotions. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of it. That, that was my, sort of my earliest relationship. And my dad would cook a lot of Jamaican food all the time. And obviously when you go to gatherings and stuff, there'd be kind of like Jamaican, like usual kind of like fry fish, you know, patties and, and things like that. And it was just always... I guess it was always, for me, because I grew up in Weymouth, it was always quite compartmentalised. It was either in the home, in families' homes. But it was always, we would go to have Jamaican food somewhere and or we'd have it cooked at home. It was never kind of, there wasn't any Jamaican community in Weymouth, but whatsoever, whatsoever. I don't know any other Jamaicans who were in Weymouth. And so it was kind of very much something that we had at home or we had at our, our relatives' homes. Yeah, I think it's interesting growing up in, especially in a place like London, uh, for the Jamaican diaspora, because as you mentioned, um, a lot of people who came to Britain came as a result of some kind of distress or trauma, you know? And so they have that kind of self-separation between them and the Jamaica, where they're obviously really proud of the culture and love it, but they themselves don't physically really want to go back. And I always found interesting how that kind of contrasts to a lot of us who grew up in Britain, usually have a lot of friends who aren't from the Caribbean, overwhelmingly white friends who have probably been to the Caribbean more than a lot of us have been ourselves. And, you know, as a result of the nature on which they travel to the islands, a lot of them have this like really wonderful time and they spend time there and they have the resources to travel there when a lot of the diaspora themselves haven't gone back. And obviously their relationship with the island is very much different. So there's always that interesting like dichotomy. Can I ask you a, question, a quick question, Riaz, just on the basis of that? Because you grew up in London, so, so did you have a similar... Because I guess I've always got this idealised vision of what it would be would have been like had I grew up growing up in London or you know another another area with a kind of stronger Jamaican diaspora, and I don't know if that you know I suppose since I've spoken to other friends and actually some friends even if they've grown up in London still kind of have a similarity of experience in terms of this separation and you know and what you were saying about having this kind of the the, the dichotomy of people who so the diaspora but then other or other people who maybe have access and the, the means to be able to travel. I mean, I, I guess from what I know about you and your books and the, so the reason that you wrote Bellyful, that part of that was because this is the food. It was kind of all around you, but you didn't really see it celebrated in the mainstream. Uh, no, I would just say that. I mean, personally, my family was such a proud and staunch Jamaican and Caribbean family that I didn't realize that Caribbean food was not Caribbean food until I went to the school where I was like one of four black kids. Up until then, like Caribbean food was just food to me. 
and there was like no real separation in that sense. Being from the Caribbean, being from Jamaica was something that they were always like truly proud of. They're always proud of the culture and the heritage and the food and the history. But in terms of actually physically traveling there and taking us to travel there and see the, you know, the quote unquote, the real part, that was where the separation was. So I think it usually takes one to be of their own accord grown up um, to finally kind of come to that self-searching moment to want to engage with the country for themselves and see it for themselves and understand it for themselves rather than through the lens of whatever pre-existing narrative like their family members have of the place. And so, yeah, I just wonder how that would have, how you came to that point and what led you to want to travel back there and engage in it and to the point of um, writing a book. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I suppose that the degree of separation that, that kind of the second generation have, where you, you don't have the emotional baggage, I guess, of anything. Like, you know, my dad, I, I know from his stories, but when I was younger, it was interesting. The stories that he told of Jamaica were only ever kind of positive, not so much about the people, although he spoke about his grandmother, but he would speak about the food and especially kind of the fruit. And you know, he knew I, I was obsessed with mangoes because, you know, I'd come up to London from Weymouth and then we'd buy... I don't know, like four four mangoes, one each, and you like you know you would save that mango because they're expensive, and you knew that you weren't going to get one for it for a long time. And he'd tell me these stories about just kind of sitting in the tree and just feasting and gorging until like he fell asleep. And I guess you kind of like it just sounded quite an idyllic childhood, and it was only until I got later. And actually, the process of writing the book has opened up a lot of conversation. And I think especially from my dad, you know, there's like Nadine White who did that documentary about Windrush Generation and children being like barrel children, and all of these things kind of helping to realise that like you know his story wasn't unique. And I guess you. Can going to get take maybe some comfort in that but for me i think it's just like a sort of a natural curiosity as, as you get older and as i got into food so when i was when i was younger when i went to uni and i went back to weymouth and i worked on the local paper there and i've got like this kind of core group of friends from from that time we're still really really good friends now and having that independence and you know like so they'd come around i had a partner and they'd come around to their flat and i'd cook like curry goat and I'm trying to think what the vegetarian option would have been like sort of curry chickpeas or something. And, you know, my, my grandma's curry chicken, which was like legendary and just always like trying to perfect that and then cooking other little things. And I think it's just that kind of desire to connect. Yeah, you have lots of life events that I think makes you want to that maybe kind of speed that up. And then I think cooking Jamaican food was always just a, a bit of a thing. And then kind of like these things that just always brought me comfort. And I, and I just, I, I don't know, it was just, it was just, it was just quite nice. And then I think with Motherland, in lockdown, I was cooking loads of, like, it was really interesting actually, because I didn't really notice I was doing it until kind of, it, I think it was a bit of a, a lot of people were doing it where, where you cook food from like, you know, kind of your cultural foods and um, your heritage foods. Because you are kind of, I mean, one, I had more time to do it i mean it's like you and community comfort right it, it wasn't just me doing that a lot of people were doing it and then i think it was just like a kind of curiosity i've always been interested in the stories of food and trying to place food within the context of of history and the people who made that food and, and i guess it kind of bothered me that i knew that tart tatan for instance was created through an accident in a kitchen and yet I didn't know how aki and saltfish came to be and and it was like well why why is that and and then I started looking online and you kind of find these little nuggets. And actually, I guess there's always an assumption. Like I, I'm I'm too, like I wouldn't even like almost bother trying to trace my family history on my dad's side because I think it would be too difficult. But actually there was a lot of, record, a lot of things that have been recorded. 
and including kind of these little like tidbits about about sort of the the origins of Jamaican food and then the people and and just there, there are sort of so many different threads that all came together you know like like Columbus and my dad was being annoyed about him whenever his name came up and I couldn't really get it I, I just thought dad was being a bit grumpy and then you sort of realised that actually that his annoyance was very valid and I, and I think when when the narrative that you've been brought up on outside of the home differs very vastly to to what you've been fed inside the home you kind of yearn to find the truth and so that's kind of I guess how motherland came about wanting to kind of celebrate Jamaican food and, and they'll also talk about its origins talk about the history and just you know I guess I guess celebrate it for, for what it was and, and I didn't want to write a book I think so I, I think sometimes publishers I feel kind of want to have books about the Caribbean that, 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 that Caribbean food they're very like tropical in their in their design and they're very kind of they don't talk about any of the origins and I you know I, I really didn't want that I wanted a book that wasn't non-threatening I think sometimes especially with Jamaica the presentation for, for white audiences can be very tropical and I, I didn't want that I wanted to have a book that actually explored the stories and the origins and also spoke about the the, the bad stuff as well as the good stuff yeah for our listeners who don't know uh, what is you know the history and background of Akin saltfish because it's, it's quite a diverse uh, recipe yeah so um so Aki came to Jamaica from what is modern day Ghana at the end of the 18th century. And um, oh, that's just kind of the recorded. I, I think there might have been movement of accuracies before then, but that's kind of the first recorded um, transportation. I think it was in 1778. And then it just flourished there. So it became like a sort of an integral part of, of the diet. And then saltfish. So saltfish was, was huge, all right, you know, widely consumed in, in Europe and in the Americas. And uh, stuff that ends up in Jamaica was of quite poor quality and it had its own name, uh, West India Cure, and some of it could be quite putrid. The evolution of that dish hasn't been recorded, but because ackee was so abundant, it would have been used a lot, the same with plantain, prepared in lots of different ways, and then put together with, with saltfish, which was part of the rations, the kind of the protein element of the rations, and it's still around today, and it's, and it's incredible. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that is kind of that discussion about shared histories. Because I think that for sure, I'd say West African diaspora growing up in London has that kind of close proximity to Caribbean culture that they're kind of aware of foods, but they'd still see it as something that's kind of disparate uh, and separate from themselves. As you mentioned, even though Aki is inherently from, from West Africa, and I found it interesting when I went to Ghana that although you can find Aki, it's really, really infrequently consumed as a food. And as the, actually as a result of it being naturally toxic, there's a lot of like taboo and bugaboos about it. So I always found it interesting how it's kind of become this national dish in Jamaica and almost the same actually for, for saltfish. Uh, it's not something that you can easily find in like European supermarkets. I've always found it interesting how these two things, whilst abundant where they came from, aren't really consumed in those places at all. I, I think because they how they were prepared, and I think that there must have been so many different food combinations that haven't lasted because maybe they weren't as nice, right? So ackee and saltfish, I guess, over years and years and years, it kind of gets perfected and, and it lingers. I mean, you look at like escabitch fish and things like that, which have been around for a long time. And, and that's why these dishes, I guess, have survived because they are so tasty. And, and I think things that have maybe have its, their origins and necessity and uh, resourcefulness. And that's why I'm just kind of always in awe of the people who first put these things together because it's just they were incredible. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how given that long history, it's really us and the first, I guess the generation just before us in terms of you know people like Ainsley Harry and Rusty Lee, who are actually technically really the first people to start physically chronicling Caribbean food in written form. Before then, it would have just been word of mouth and 
it's never stratified in the same way. And I think maybe, I'm not sure how it was for you in terms of maybe getting recipes from your family. That way we understand recipes is something that's just not the way that things were done in the Caribbean over the years. Obviously people, especially West African slaves and their descendants were forbidden from reading and writing. So of course they couldn't chronicle all their food, but yeah, I think it's, it's interesting how now we're that generation who are actually chronicling these things in that form. Yeah, and, and I think, I don't know how you found it, but I almost found it quite difficult because writing a recipe and having it so prescriptive is almost counterintuitive to the way that I was taught to cook. So like curry chicken, so my grandma taught me how to make that. And, you know, and because I was quite young when she did it, I didn't question the fact that she wasn't using precise measurements. And then my dad, if my dad's cooking something new, he'll obviously follow the recipe. But whenever he's cooking, like he's got, like, my dad is so good with flavours. Whenever he's cooking anything from his mental repertoire, he doesn't use precise recipes. He just knows, he just knows when things are enough. He knows it by taste. Uh, so in the book, I did try to have that a little bit where it was like, smell it or like, smell your pimento berries. And if you can smell cinnamon in them and clove in them, then they're good. But if you can't, then add a bit of cinnamon, add a bit of clove to it, because what you're getting in this country it isn't always going to be the same as what you'd get in Jamaica. Yeah, that's true. I think it's also kind of reductionist in terms of like even natural geography, which is something that we don't really speak a lot in terms of food and recipe writing, even though that's equally important to the makeup of the food as anything else. I remember when I was staying up in the Blue Mountains, right at the source of a lot of the springs, the water is so mineral rich that it actually makes a huge difference to the flavor when you put it in a soup. So it's impossible to say, you know, use 300 ml of this water because the effect of having, you know, 300 ml of water that comes directly from the spring is so much different from the effect that you're going to have from water from a tap in East London. Advertising hasn't always had the best reputation. Whether it's playing on our most primal fears, encouraging needless consumption or perpetuating damaging stereotypes, it can sometimes feel that the ad industry has a lot to answer for. But can advertising's immense power actually be used for good? In this new series, produced by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Havas US, two of Havas's chief creative officers, Myra Nussbaum and Dan Lucy, talk to the people who are harnessing the power of advertising to help people and the planet. In each episode, Dan and Myra will speak to the creatives and marketeers who are using advertising to combat misinformation, racial inequality, gun violence and other blights on our world. Search Advertising Will Save Us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and join us as we ask, could advertising help save us after all? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So how did you go about the travel in Jamaica, not just physically, but kind of in your mind about like, the different elements of Jamaica that you wanted to capture and display? Uh, what was your process behind that? Well, I guess like I had a plan and I guess a, a rough timeline, I suppose. And I think that was it, really. I think I think that my approach was very much determined by the timeline, Jamaica's timeline. And so I had a kind of a rough outline. And then I think I kind of stuck to it. But then there were some things, obviously, because I didn't know what, like, what I was going to uncover. And I had, I had kind of a lot of tidbits that I, I kind of knew or that I'd read in the past and, you know, that I'd heard. And so it was just a case of like weaving them in and seeing what, what was true and what I could build upon. And so I was down at the British Library a lot, like reading a lot of the, you know, kind of their, their old text there. And then sort of in Jamaica, like looking at sort of like the like Museum of Jamaica, anything, anything that I could, anything that I get. And I guess for me, it was more about what to exclude because there's so much there. And ultimately, this is a cookbook with a sort of an, a narrative bent, you know, talking about the, the history. It's, it's not a history book. So in terms of that process as well, then how did you strike that fine balance between, you know, illustrating the history and the past of Jamaica, but as well as kind of making a lot of these fun modern twists on a lot of the classics that I've seen in your book? I write a lot of recipes anyway. As someone who's quite interested in food, I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of interested in ways that I can make food, I guess, closer to my palate or like things that I really like. So, you know, I've got the Guinness punch pie, which is just like, I love making custard tarts. I love things like that. Like, like I really like a creamy pudding. And so that's how that came about. And it just works. And, and because I've done it so many times, it's like I, I can do it quite quickly. And people, especially people who know Guinness punch, get quite excited by that. So that's quite nice. And then corn fritters are amazing, but then kind of, because like sweet corn is one of my most favorite things and then just toasting that corn beforehand especially doing it in a bit in a bit of butter 
and just the flavour that imparts. So it's just, I don't know if you know um, Quasi Brenia Mensa from Tatale. He once said to me, uh, not to me, to a room for the people, uh, we're at this event and he was like, you know, whenever you're cooking food outside their country of origin, you're only ever cooking a version of it. And I guess this version is, it's Jamaican food and, and the classics, but then also dishes that are massively influenced by me and my upbringing and my, and my tastes. And so that's how it came about, really. It's just, I, I just think food is, is there to have fun with. And as long as people are respectful of the origins, you know, I've always, I've always said this, I mean, especially with people talking about appropriation and things like this, it's like, I think appropriation is, is a very real thing, but I think it can be easily avoided by people respecting the origins and talking about how a dish is supposed to be and the fact that they are tweaking it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I agree with that too. To the most part, but I think the interesting part of what makes Caribbean food is that taking that understanding of it, that all Caribbean food is just a version of food, you know, like the roots of that food inherently all come from different places um, and the reasons that they changed and the ingredients in them that are changed up. Uh, there are so many different reasons behind that, you know, availability and climate. And so I do often wonder what what perhaps makes something authentic just because it was made in Jamaica versus something that was made in Britain by people of Jamaican descent in the same way that food was made in Jamaica by people of West African descent. Like was their food inherently less authentic than the food in West Africa just because they weren't there anymore. And so. Oh, but I, yeah, but this is, I mean, cause I don't, I don't talk about like authenticity. I think authenticity is, it's not a word that I, I, I talk about appropriation. Um, but I, I don't think I said the word authentic, did I? Cause for me, food is constantly evolving. And I think often people think that say like in this moment, right now on this day that this is like the end point it's like no food is always evolving like in 50 years time dish is going to look different my grandparents would have had to i'm sure use alternative ingredients when they came to the uk because they couldn't get certain dishes like they probably couldn't get kalaloo at first and things like that so you make do with what's available like if i'm just making jerk then if i'm joking something i will use bay leaves and i'll use pimento berries because that's what i can get hold of easily rather than trying to get pimento woods to do it quite marked authentically and I think sometimes people, especially from within the communities, can be quite like really protective of the way that they do things. And to them, that is the only way. Like I've got, I've I've got into kind of not arguments, but these kind of tennis match things with people about you know whether Jamaican curries have tomatoes in them, and they're, they're like Jamaican curries don't have tomatoes. And I was like, well, my curry chicken does. And they're like, yeah, but Jamaican. And it's like, well, do you know what I mean? I I do. My dad does. My grandma put tomato, like, so So who's saying that, Jamaican curry? And why are you saying that? Like, why is there this kind of protectiveness over over Jamaican food to the point where people are like, that's not how you do it? Like, I, I don't think I would, oh, well, I do say, actually, I, no, that's that's a lie. I was about to say, I don't think I do that. I do, like, when people, like, there's, there's certain, like, sort of celebrity chefs I've seen putting, like, jalapeno peppers in, uh, in their jerk marinades and stuff like that. And that kind of bothers me because it's like anyone who has any idea of Jamaican food knows that jerk is, like, scotch bonnets, right? And, and so I find that kind of, like, I don't even think you can get, I don't know, I'm sure jalapenos, maybe you can get them in Jamaica. They ain't grown in Jamaica as far as I know, unless they're, well, they haven't historically been grown. And, and it's when things like that are presented as being a certain way and, and it's like, if someone wanted to say, right, jerk is normally made with scotch bonnets. However, one day I didn't have any scotch bonnets, so I put it with jalapenos and, and it was quite interesting. I don't know, like that would sit better with me than someone just kind of presenting it as though this is, because for a lot of that people's audience, that is a white chef who's got a massive white audience. And then people could be like, oh, right, okay, so you make jerk with jalapenos, who knew? Yeah, it's often the case of the rarity in which a lot of people of those platforms often share their space and give their space to people actually of different cultures to, you know, comment on 
different uh, nuances in the cuisine. Yeah, as you said, they'll just um, they'll present it in a way of which they can use ingredients from the local supermarket and just claim that as a thing. It can be very damaging, actually. Yeah, it's re- it's really damaging, and also I, I find it like extremely frustrating. I mean, it's something that you see on social media all the time. But there was another chef, and he did a suya recipe, and and I was just like, why not take that opportunity? And there's no kind of reference to where where he got the recipe from. And I just think, well, why not use that as an opportunity to platform someone who knows this food and be taught by them and have a conversation? Because ultimately, if you're broadcasting this, that's going to be a much more interesting video of someone talking about the origins of suya and what goes into it and talking about like, where it's cooked and who cooks it traditionally and kind of then kind of getting into the different tribes and, and I, I just view these things as missed opportunities there's almost an assumption that the audience isn't interested and maybe they're not and maybe i just don't understand people but i, I find it always a bit quite sad i mean you'd assume that there was interest in terms of the fact that it's happening and it's occurred and it's been signed off by someone to say oh why don't you do something of this nature with jerk or zero so often so it seems like there is that taste for it and i think anyone who spends time in any food capacity especially in london and the southeast knows there's an overwhelming demand for food from from different cultures and cuisines and there has been for decades now, I guess. Um, it's just who gets to be the face of that and who gets to present that. Yeah, totally. And I, I always think, I, like I get the impression that, that there's a belief that there has to be a, a white middleman to present it to the, the majority or to present it to the mainstream. And, and that frustrates me because it's um, ultimately, I think it's it's theft, it's cultural theft because they, they have they have taken that recipe from somewhere and they're not giving the people who, who are connected to that culture their dues. Yeah, and I guess circling back to motherland as well i guess the reason obviously that's obviously important as as a result of the kind of context of this conversation which is happening in the middle of i always say quote unquote black history month but in reality it's british history month you know recent jamaican history is not in a vacuum um it's not something that happened separate to british history is very much part of british history and so yeah this continued appropriation of the labor and the resources of the caribbean by people of british descent is an important conversation to have yeah, for sure. And I, I don't think it does get celebrated sort of celebrated as it should and, and recognised. And I think with Black History Month, I, I find myself, I think in some respects, it's you know, sort of good things happen. But I think this separation kind of perpetuates that in a way, you know, it, it perpetuates this idea that, that black people and black history and black experience exist outside of the mainstream. And, and that's quite difficult. So you're based now in London. So I'm interested from your perspective, how you see the place of Jamaican food in London, in the southeast, and on your travels and the many like food and cooking events you do, like the reception to it and um, where it sits in that context of gentrification in Britain and whether that people of Caribbean descent are adequately platformed. Uh, I, no, I don't think people of, of Caribbean descent are adequately platformed. I think Britain as a whole, the whole language uh, mindset around food isn't geared up for that at present because there is still this very Eurocentric idea of food and that French food reigns supreme. It, I mean, look at all the language, right? And and one of my friends, Marcel, from Point, she said that it, everyone's having trouble recruiting chefs. And she said, but we're not because the language they recruit them with, they don't use like, you know, shift to party and sous chef and all this sort of stuff. They just have it. I don't know how they describe it, but they just use sort of British language that is easy for people to understand. So the, so the language itself isn't a barrier to entry. And I think that's really, I think that's really interesting for me. And like, you know, obviously I can see gentrification happening, especially in the kind of the areas where there's been kind of a history, uh, sort of a strong black British history, Peckham and Brixton being in, the, in Southeast London. They're the places that are closest to me. And it's really weird because on one hand I can see that that's happening and I know it's happened and I can 
read people who've, who've written about it, who've grown up in London. But then for me, as someone who's come from Weymouth, where it was just overwhelmingly white, those places are still going to be like really nice for me to be to be in because it's it's kind of there is still a lot of sort of black culture and black foods and 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 it, it is difficult. So if I've got this kind of inner turmoil of what I know is happening and what those places mean to me and how comfortable I I, I feel in them. I mean I feel comfortable in all of London really, apart from West London. I feel comfortable everywhere, and and that's why I love this city more than anything because it's just there's like a degree of anonymity. Whereas if I leave it and I go to I don't know, we went on holiday to somewhere in the West Country. Even I come from the West Country and especially being in, in a same-sex relationship with a daughter and I kind of, you know, I, I just sometimes feel that I sort of stand out. So like London's my sanctuary. But I, I think the food scene here, I think, is is like very slowly changing. And I think there are some like really good events. Like I did meet, I've done Meetopia for the last couple of years and, and sort of Molly who organises that, I think is is keen to platform people from all over because she knows that these are stories that haven't been told, that they are stories that deserve to be told and the food is going to be good and the food's going to be interesting. And I think that's why that event is so successful. Like I, I get the impression, Riaz, that you're a bit more kind of um, sensible when it comes to saying yes to things, whereas sometimes I can kind of say yes to things and, and I then regret it. There's been a few other events I've done over the summer and I can see that I've just been parachuted in because they, they looked at the lineup and they're like, oh man, it's, it's really white, right? We need to get some, we need to get someone who's black. And in that space, I just felt like I haven't really belonged and it's not its not my space. It's not kind of, yeah, I don't feel comfortable. I'm not made to feel comfortable and I'm there purely on a quota basis. And so that's difficult. And we said at Meetopia, we did jerk. Um, we did jerk chicken and um, last year we did jerk pork. And it was just, and it's just nice. And, and people there are, the people who come, like, they're quite geeky about food. And so they wanted to know, like last year I had kind of scotchies from, that like, I brought back from Jamaica and I had like proper pimento berries. And so, and, and everyone wanted to know about it. They wanted to know what I've been smoking it on and, and stuff like that. I did it with Maureen Tyne and that was really special. But then there are other events and things. And I think generally that there has always been still that kind of separation. And, and also in terms of having restaurants and stuff, Jamaican restaurants, but then I, but then I kind of wonder... I don't know, like, what would a Jamaican restaurant look like? I, I guess there's like Negril in Brixton. I mean, there are a few other places, but yeah, I, I think generally there's still a way to go. I think we're drawing to the end of our discussion. Maybe we can both do this in terms of maybe picking out two or three recipes that we would give to those people who never tried Jamaican or Caribbean food, what your kind of go-tos would be for them. So this would be like a, a supper club, right? So if they came round, or they came round for dinner, what would it be on the menu, I guess? Or, this, or if they even wanted to cook dinner for their friends and they'd never cooked it before. Oh man, like trying to get me to like, decide on a few. Like, I mean, in, in my like my saltfish fritters, I don't put scotch bonnets in them because I serve them with, with pepper mayo on the side and because my daughter can't handle any sort of spice. And so that's just how I, that's how I do them. And, and I think that they're... they're really good i think i think having having one down but i mean for me i'm, I'm probably gonna go like like curry chicken or curry goat and, and i think and explaining how like the ingredients work so you know, with the scotch bonnet like just put it in a hole for like half an hour and then take it out so you're getting a bit of that flavor or just tell people they can kind of deal with it how they want to they want something really hot put the whole thing in it's such a kind of unique curry dishes that i think they're just delicious but then there's also kind of oxtail as well which i think is amazing okay so i have in fact no Aki and saltfish, no, saltfish fritters. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it as a menu, uh, saltfish fritters, then curry goat, and then I'd have, oh, but then in fact, I'll have a soup as well. Um, chicken soup, chicken soup, spinners. What about you? I think my go to that I've been giving people recently is, um, is a sweet potato, chickpea, and coconut milk curry slash stew, however you want to term it. This is something that I think the process in making it is something that's quite underlying in the book. 
in terms of how you work with creating like a spice mix to make a curry. Um, but at the same time, I still feel like a lot of people are daunted by starchy vegetables, particularly yams, cassava, things like that. So it starts with sweet potato, but also says, you know, you can actually use anything, sweet potato, regular potatoes, cocoa, yams, dasheen, whatever you want to call it. Um, and also players on this idea of interacting with foods that are actually foreign, but yet somehow people have come to accept them as day-to-day -day ingredients. So like namely chickpeas, like chickpeas are not native to Britain by any means, but yet somehow that's become a part of everyday British language. And it's kind of playing with that idea of like, how, how does that happen? How does it happen that something like chickpeas can become something that people have no fear of interacting with, but they suddenly draw the line that they're planting or an okra. And yeah, it's also super easy to make, just like a lot of one-put style dishes. It's really true, actually, because you look at stuff like quinoa, right? And bataga and stuff like that, which people kind of, I guess it's just when they get they get platformed in um, in magazines and things. I think, like, look at the effect that Delia Smith had on on food and she talked about an ingredient and then suddenly you couldn't get it anymore. Or like Ottolenghi, you know, him writing about certain ingredients and how that's just kind of transitioned in the mainstream until it becomes ordinary. These things that once seemed exotic become almost commonplace. Oh, yeah, I think it's fascinating in that extent as well. I guess you essentially you write recipes uh, a lot. I wonder how much pushback you get from editors. Can we use regular potatoes instead of yam for this? Or can you use this instead of that? When at the same time you get an Ottolenghi book and it's overwhelmed you <laughs> with barberries and Korean limes and yuzu lemons <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And all these people live in places where you can get planting at arm's length. Well, this is the good thing about coming into things a bit, a bit sort of, you know, I guess my, my, my recipe writing has been, it came a bit later in life and, um, and after kind of a few frustrating careers in which I'd, I wish I'd said more. So, so now if there is pushback, I'm, I'm quite, you know, there, there's been certain things where I've used ingredients and they've been questioned and I'm like, you know, either I'm doing this or I'm, or I'm not. Again, going back to that idea of, of having to be resourceful and use what you have available. I don't mind so much talking about alternatives or offering alternatives, especially, I mean, not everyone's going to have the resources to be able to go and buy lots of ingredients. And so, and, and I want to make it as accessible to as many people as possible and I don't want people to be buying stuff and then it's going to like kind of use it half a bit and then the rest of it's going to be sort of languishing in, the, in their cupboards. I've done stuff maybe with like a, like that had scotch bonnets in it and there was a bit of pushback. This actually was hot. It was like a hot sauce and, um, and this is like a while back and, you know, can we kind of water it down a bit? And I was like, no, like... I'm happy to say like that's the whole point. It's hot, but it's also got this amazing flavour. And just have to tell people like you know, kind of if you're if you haven't got massive heat tolerance, and just kind of tread carefully and just have a little dab of it first and see how you get on with it. And so yeah, so sometimes I do get a bit of pushback, or or, or you know, having to maybe come up with sort of like Jamaican menus and Jamaican recipes from certain places or working with certain brands and actually then you go to look at what they have on offer and nothing is very Jamaican at all and so that's always a bit of a difficult one. What about you? Have you have you had to do that? Yeah but I think it's interesting in terms of accessibility because when I get that pushback it's kind of what I have to relate to people again is that Jamaica doesn't exist in a vacuum um, and actually very rarely unless you live in the small pockets of North, East or South London, actually part of West London as well, that you'll find a quote unquote actual Jamaican grocery shop. Uh, the history of Jamaica, as we mentioned, is so laden with interaction from West Africa, uh, India and China, that actually a lot of the rest, um, the ingredients that you need 
uh, you can find in those shops and the grocery shops of those communities, which are in themselves all across England. And I think that when I get that pushback, it's like that education and that knowledge still isn't there. Because if it was, I don't think there would be so much pushback. And I so, say, yeah, I think it's interesting that it's usually Caribbean food where people draw that line of like, it's still being an alien culture in Britain. Even though, as we mentioned, people have been doing work for over a century now. Well, I, I think that's an interesting point because I think, is it that you can't get ingredients where, where you are or is it that you have some sort of nervousness about going into the shops where you can get it from? And I think in lockdown, this became really apparent when everyone was losing their minds about kind of things not being in supermarkets. And I was like, just go to like, I've got like Penge Foods, it's a Turkish supermarket down in, in Sydenham and they had everything. They always had everything, but it's just that people wouldn't think to go there. This kind of try, trying to encourage people to actually go into shops. And I think I kind of understand in one way because I think I used to feel a bit like nervous back in the day going into sort of Chinese supermarket and asking for certain things or like, you know, wanting to come, like not, not wanting to come across as stupid or ignorant when they've got, you know, so many different soy sauces or something. And it's like, right, what's the difference? Like, what should I be looking for? But actually, when people are working in food, I think invariably they like talking about it. So just, you know, so actually it's, it's educating people that you can just ask. You can go into a shop that you're unfamiliar with, unfamiliar with maybe with some of the produce because you learn so quickly. It'd be like, you know, and, and just getting to understand these things. And it's, it's useful in that. I guess thank you, Melissa. So that was Melissa Thompson, author of Motherland, a Jamaican cookbook, which is available now. I've been Riaz Phillips, author of West Wind, recipe history and tales from Jamaica, and you've been listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.